You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. Hello, I am Tamara Cherry, broadcasting live from my fancy basement studio in our guest bedroom in Regina, Saskatchewan. Thank you for having me. Evan is off this week. He will be back from what I understand next week. So you will be listening to me for the next few days. Uh, Before we jump into the show, just some housekeeping. A reminder that if you want to listen back to the show or catch an interview you may have missed, you can listen to the Evan Solomon Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe to the show and keep up with all the latest news you need need to know. Also, of course, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Evan Solomon Show, where we tweet out audio and news from the show. And of course, listen to us on your smart speaker. That's always how I listen to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, to the Evan Solomon Show. Just ask for, for me, it's Alexa. I say, Alexa, play the Evan Solomon Show, and she does. Well, today is a special day in our family here in Regina, because today is my nephew's fifth birthday. So to celebrate, we went to one of those places yesterday with the giant indoor play structure. My sister and her husband rented out a room where we ate chips and pizza and drank slushies and gave gifts. I wiggled my way to the top of the play structure and played with my three-year-old in a tunnel overlooking the room. I held hands with my seven-year-old as we went down the big slide side by side. And I helped my five-year-old climb up some of those big squishy steps. At one point, a highlight of the evening, I must say, a giant Pikachu went walking by there to entertain kids at another Pokemon-themed party. Then we came home and we brushed our kids' teeth and threw them in the bath and I braided my daughter's hair and we played with some of the little toys from their loot bags and printed out the millionth picture of Harold Robot from Paw Patrol for my three-year-old because he's completely obsessed with Harold Robot these days. And then we put them all to bed and my husband and I started watching a docuseries on Netflix about a bank heist in Brazil. This morning, I woke up and got on my stationary bike and began looking at the latest images from Ukraine. This time, a sprawling shopping mall that was reduced to rubble by a Russian missile strike in the capital city of Kiev. A frantic search for survivors, people being pulled from the rubble, bodies being carried out. Eight dead so far, at least at the last count in the the story that I was reading this morning, though that number is sure to rise. The New York Times reported that the explosion was so powerful that it blew debris hundreds of yards in every direction, shook buildings, and flattened one part of the mall. It turned the parking lot into a sea of flames. There was no visible evidence of any military vehicles or hardware at the mall, the Times reported. And while Kiev has been under bombardment for weeks, the devastation around the mall was greater than anything the New York Times has witnessed inside the city limits to date, the paper reported. I finished my workout and the kids got out of bed and they played and they ate and they climbed into their car seats and their booster seat. And I said, question. And they said, me, 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 because they knew what I was going to ask them. Who's going to have an awesome day? And I kissed them goodbye, and my husband took them to school and to daycare. And I went to my computer and looked at a picture of a crying Ukrainian woman being comforted by her young son. They had fled their country. Her other son, a young man, and her husband had stayed back to fight. And my heart sank again. 
I can only imagine. I know many of you out there listening across Canada can relate when I say that the feeling of helplessness from our safety in Canada can at times feel crippling. Well, later this hour, we're going to hear from Canadian Dave. Do you remember that name? Canadian Dave? He was on the show back in the fall. He was the remarkable man, Dave Lavery, who evacuated some 100 Afghans from Afghanistan when the Taliban took control of the country back in August. And he has some ideas for us for how we can help. Of course, we've been hearing stories of Canadians going to Ukraine to fight. Absolutely harrowing stories of people leaving their family, their, their wives, their kids here to go there because they feel compelled to fight. But of course, there are so many of us back here feeling that crippling helplessness. Well, Dave has gone from Afghanistan to Poland. He's now on the border, the Poland-Ukraine border, and he has some ideas for you to help. So he is going to be joining us a little later in the show. I really look forward to that conversation. Coming up after the break in the next few minutes, we're going to be speaking to retired Major General Dennis Thompson, who will help us break down the developments in Ukraine over the past few days, including the fact that even as we see that mall in in Kiev being basically leveled, reduced to rubble, Ukraine has rejected Russia's demand that soldiers defending the southern port city of Mariupol surrender at dawn today. So I'm looking forward to this conversation with retired Major General Dennis Thompson to ask him what that signals for the path of this conflict? What what could it mean for the coming days, weeks, months? A little bit later on in the show, we're going to be talking about the CP rail strike slash lockout. Depends what side you're listening to, what you want to call it. Whatever we're calling it, we are looking at potentially some pretty significant supply chain disruptions, even more supply chain disruptions from what we've already experienced from the so-called Freedom Convoy and from the pandemic in general, and of course now from the war that is raging in Ukraine. So we're going to talk to the Senior Vice President of Policy and Government Relations at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Perhaps not surprisingly, I expect that he will tell us that uh, the government needs to intervene immediately. Uh, But we'll see what he has to say a little bit later on this hour. And then coming up in the second hour of the show is a segment that I am particularly looking forward to. This is a segment where we are going to reflect on the life and legacy of a man that may be a household name for some and, and maybe for others of you, you've never heard of him. His name was Andrew Murray. Andy, to those who who knew him well, he was the CEO of Mad Canada, that's Mothers Against Drunk Driving, for the past 25 years. This is a man that dedicated a huge chunk of his life to advocating for drunk driving, impaired driving victims and survivors. He was instrumental in having laws changed in this country. Coming up in the next hour, we are going to speak with two people who worked very closely with Andy Murray at MAD Canada, Robert Solomon, who's a professor of law at Western University and former longtime legal director for MAD Canada, and also Carolyn Swinson, former chair of the National Board, 
former national president, former president of Mad Toronto Chapter, and the current director of victim services for the Toronto Chapter. These are two people who knew Andy Murray well. We're also going to talk about who Andy was as a person. He was a husband. He was a father. Did you know that he was a five-time time Ironman? I did not know that until I read his uh, his obituary, which I've tweeted out at Tamara Cherry, if you want to check it out. Another story we're going to get into today, because we haven't quite talked na- enough about the Freedom Convoy, right? Especially our, our listeners in Ottawa. I'm sure that you're not sick to death of that story. Well, Justin Ling, the freelance investigative journalist who is no stranger to this show, had an expansive piece published in the Toronto Star this weekend that questioned what was behind the so-called Freedom Convoy. Of course, most of us know that, I mean, we've known since pretty early on in the Freedom Convoy, so-called Freedom Convoy, I should say, that it was a little bit more, it was about more than just vaccine mandates. Well, Justin Ling has taken a deep dive into this issue, and you may be surprised to hear that the roots of this convoy actually go back to well before the pandemic even started. So I'm really looking forward to Justin's insights into what began this this convoy and and what we can expect from these players now, because there is still a big chunk of cash that the government did not get its hands on that was fundraised for this group. Um, And I'm curious to know what Justin thinks they might be planning with this cash next. So we got a full show. Again, I'm Tamara Cherry. Thank you so much for having me filling in for Evan Solomon today, tomorrow, the next day. Somebody else is going to be filling in for him on Thursday. Talk to you more coming up after the break. This is the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, this is Tamara broadcasting live from Regina, Saskatchewan, filling in for Evan this week. He will be back, from what I understand, next week. On the line with us now is retired Major General Dennis Thompson. Major General uh, Thompson served 39 years in the Canadian Army, deploying on multiple operations, including Command of NATO's Task Force Kandahar and Canada's Special Operations Forces. Uh, Major General, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we want to... We're hoping you can walk us through the the latest developments uh, from Ukraine over the weekend, uh, perhaps the most significant uh, coming just recently with Ukraine, Ukraine's rejection of Russia's demand that soldiers defending the southern port of Mariupol surrender at dawn today. What do you make of this uh, outright rejection from re- Ukraine? Well, I think it's a realization that Ukraine has actually fought the Russians to a standstill. And that the prospects for continued Russian success are very slim. And unfortunately, what we can expect is uh, more atrocities because they will continue as they have done in previous conflicts, whether that be in Georgia, in Chechnya or in Syria, to pound civilian centers in an effort to get the Ukrainians to surrender. And I don't believe that they're that they're going to because I actually think that they they're going to succeed against the Russians. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that because Russia has absolutely pounded residential areas right across the country, but perhaps nowhere has suffered like Mariupol. Uh, the city has been under sage and constant bombardment with no food, no medicine, no power, no fresh water since the early days of this war. Uh, Ukrainian's defense minister says that Mariupol is saving several other cities in Ukraine by refusing Russia's demand to surrender. What what do you think that Ukraine is trying to signal in that before we get into uh, what you think is going to happen? Well, first off, take this, the size of that city. Mariupol is a population of 400,000. Perhaps there's 300,000 people left in the city. And it's unfortunate, obviously, for the citizens of the city. But now compare that to Kiev, which is a city of almost three million and you get you get a sense for how difficult it would be for the Russians to actually take a city larger than Mariupol, one which, mm-hmm. by the way, they dominate not only from the land but from the sea and the air as well. So if they can't take that town, it would take house-to-house fighting to get that job done, and it doesn't appear to me that the Russian military has either the morale or the gumption to actually go into these major centers and fight through street by street. Uh, where, by the way, the Ukrainians would have an even greater advantage. So if they can't take Mariupol, and it's true, uh, by not surrendering, they're signaling to the rest of the country uh, that that if they can hold out, the rest of mm-hmm. the country can easily hold out. What What would the significance have been for Russia if they were to have taken Mariupol? Well, it creates that land bridge. That there's a lot of talk about a land bridge between Donbass and Crimea, because the two aren't connected by uh, by any road network. Uh, and by taking that city, which is uh, clearly on the route between the two areas, between Donbass and, uh, and Crimea, they would have created a land bridge and therefore uh, a method for them to resupply their troops. They already have it, though, because there is a bridge between Russia proper and Crimea and the Crimean Peninsula further to the mm-hmm. uh, south and east. Now, Ukrainian officials so are... Ho- Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I just get that's the significance that it, that it creates that land bridge, that's all. Absolutely. Um, now, just speaking to some of the optimism that you just shared with us a minute ago, uh, Ukrainian officials are hoping that Moscow will cut its losses and negotiate a withdrawal. Is that how you see this happening ultimately? Because you, you alluded to, of course, uh, further bloodshed, unfortunately, that will likely follow uh, the, the, the denial for the demand to, to give up Mariupol. There's only one man that has the answer to that, and his name is Vladimir Putin. And unfortunately, yeah. it's very hard to get inside his head. He is uh, uh, a product of 19th century Russian thinking about their spheres of influence, etc. He's not, uh, as a lot of people would like to portray him, as crazy. He just exists in a different frame of reference than, than one that we understand in the West. And so uh, the answer to that specific question, how long will the Russians carry on, is mm-hmm. really up to him. Um, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, unfortunately, as they have proven. I mentioned in the other three conflicts where Russia uh, has hung on and continued to pound civilian centers. The difference here is that the reaction of the West has been unified and very strong against uh, Russian actions in Ukraine. Let's talk about that unified response from the West, because NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg has urged Canada to do more. Uh, He has celebrated what Canada has already done, but he said you need to do more. You need to follow up on pledges to spend at least 2% of gross domestic product on defense. Do you think uh, that this is likely? Do you think that this will be reflected in our upcoming federal budget? 
Um, <laughs> I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess at what the federal government will do. What I will say, though, in defense of the Canadian Armed Forces, is that they have successfully trained over thirty thousand Ukrainian junior leaders since two thousand fifteen, when when Operation Unifier was in place in Ukraine, and that achievement is significant because. What it has shown us is a change in the leadership culture of the Ukrainian military from being a top-down driven military like the Russians or like the Soviets into a military where initiative and junior leaders make local decisions, and that is what's holding the Ukrainian defense together. Uh, It's remarkable what they've achieved, but a lot of it has to do with adopting a Western style of fighting and uh, allowing initiative to be exercised at the lowest possible level. So... Canada has nothing to be ashamed of. Its training mission has actually paying off now. Clearly, in the future, we need to pay more attention to our defense spending, but I wouldn't want to guess uh, what that means to the current government and, and whether or not they're willing to make the investments that are necessary. Okay, so let's talk about that, because you say in the future we need to think about it, but there's some people that are saying now, 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 we need to be investing now. Is it realistic to think that if we were to throw a bunch of more money into our our military defenses right now, that that would actually have an impact immediately? Like, it, is is it in the realm of possibility, or, or, or should we more realistically be thinking, you know, in the next five, ten years? I mean, it's it's in everything is in the realm of possibility if there is direction at the executive level, at the prime ministerial and ministerial level. Uh, I mean, we've seen it during the conflict in Afghanistan where we we managed to get Leopard two tanks and C seventeen aircraft in a very short order. Uh, if we were in such an emergency, and remember, Canada is not directly threatened here. But if we were in such an emergency, we could certainly do that. And perhaps top of the list would be anti-tank weapons and, and surface-to-air missiles uh, to provide protection, to, to provide some form of air defense, which Canada currently doesn't have. Now, those things, I, I, I imagine, you could buy in very short order, but it's not. Uh, it's typically the procurement process is much longer than that, and, I, and I'm not certain that uh, everyone sees the same urgency from a Canadian perspective, a clearly Canadian, like a solely Canadian perspective, rather than uh, the, the conflict that's ongoing in Ukraine where, there's, where there is an emergency. What do you think would tip the scales on that? Because, I mean, as you said, Vladimir Putin, nobody can seem to get inside his ha- head and figure out what he's going to think now or what, what, what his ne- next moves will be. And even to that point, what he will consider, you know, uh, to be foreign interference, you know, not to his liking to the point that he might do things that would uh, bring in uh, an, an actual NATO on the ground conflict. So what do you think would tip the scales where we see Canada as as needing that defense back home? Well, the, the, the first one is obviously uh, our enhanced forward presence battle group in Latvia. If, for whatever reason, Vladimir Putin decides to send Russian forces into into the Baltic states, and in particular Latvia, then Canadian forces will be directly threatened. And that's obviously of great concern to those that are deployed, which are primarily uh, based on the, the first battalion that was in the regiment, currently um, deployed on the ground there, then, then clearly that's going to be a trigger for a much a much more robust response from the Canadian government. Uh, and so if if there was concern about that particular option, then obviously they'd have to accelerate uh, the purchase of weapons that would be appropriate to defend that avenue approach from the Rus- Russians. But uh, mm-hmm. at the moment, it seems their hands are tied in Ukraine, and unless Russia crosses 
a NATO border and triggers an Article 5 response, it's unlikely that anything will come about. Yeah. All right, retired Major General Dennis Thompson, thanks so much for your insights and your time today. Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back to the show. A little bit earlier on in the show, I was speaking to that crippling helplessness that I know many of us have been feeling since Russia invaded Ukraine four weeks ago now. It's been four weeks. My God. Um, well, our next guest is somebody that doesn't sit around and do nothing. He is somebody who acts. David Lavery, a.k.a. Canadian Dave, is someone you may remember from the fall. Evan Solomon chatted with him in the fall when he helped get at least 100 Afghans through the chaos of the Kabul airport to safety. He's currently at the Poland-Ukraine border helping to support families. Canadian Dave is an ex-Special Forces soldier with the Canadian Armed Forces, and he joins us now. Thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, Tamara, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? A little tired, emotional. It's been a roller coaster ride. Uh, we've been, you know, we're um, very high on emotions today. We brought back 12 folks with us um, and we're just settling them in as we speak. So it's been a really busy day. We go into Ukraine with supplies and we bring back precious cargo. My God. Okay, bring us back to the beginning, Dave. When did you arrive there? Um, yeah, we, 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 like all the world, we are following this and we're no stranger to all the horrific events that have been going on. We're still supporting our Afghan mission. Um, and, uh, we, un- this unfolded. So, uh, I was in Turkey and the first of March, we ended up over here with our partners. Um, we've got a joint venture with uh, a bunch of great folks from CanAid Logistics and our Raven Ray team. And we all met in um, Warsaw, and we made our way to the border area, and we've been here since, um, doing the best we can, setting up networks, supply chains, warehouses, transportation, trying to um, get links inside Ukraine at specific locations, trying to get the word out so that way we have, because we do have the expertise, expertise we've been doing it mm-hmm. for some time in Afghanistan, working with great folks uh, back in Afghanistan and now trying to work in Ukraine, Amalora, you've heard of them, a great NGO, they're trying mm-hmm. to also assist and help. So we've been here since 1st of March and we're going to continue doing what we do best. And, and when you say we, you're referring to your private security company, Raven Ray Consultancy. Is that right? Yeah, we're not really a security company or a risk mitigating company. Uh, I'm, I'm dealing with uh, my partners, CanAid Logistics. So mm-hmm. they're in here and uh, my team is in here. There's, there's many folks, but that is the team from Canada right on the ground right now making things happen. Dave, you started this conversation telling us that you brought 12 folks back with you. Tell me, tell me what happened. Who are these people? Where did you find them? What does their future look well, like? 
well, they're, you know, it's very emotional to get into it. You, uh, you, you realize there's no males that are going to be coming back this way. If they're yeah. serving of age, they have to stay. So one family, the uh, one of the serving individuals, he's a, he's a Ukraine Army officer. Uh, he handed over his baby to us and his name, little baby David. Um, oh. So precious cargo, big, very emotional, hands yeah. the baby to us and says goodbye and then carries on to the front line. So we have a mixture. A lot of these folks, um, there was a reach out from, uh, if I remember correctly, through a, um, through the bishop or one of the chaplains, because one of the chaplains met us in Lviv, uh, a cry out to our Canadian ambassador for Ukraine, who are now situated in Jeju, uh here in Poland, to see if there's any assistance. So we got trickle, uh, we got wind of it. Um, so our team uh, especially went into Ukraine with some supplies and said, yes, we'll bring any families we can to bring them back and start it. So we've had, you know, we had a, a vehicles full of uh, children and adults, um, uh, and they're now in, in, in good spirits, and we're just getting them their accommodations, getting them food and all the provisions that's going to set them for the next phase. This this baby that was baby David that was handed over to you guys was his mother with him or or this is a case of yes. of a child yeah. yeah okay I, yeah, I can only imagine how emotional so that would have been oh it was we extremely have... emotional the father passing the baby over you know mom's there um, it was it was hard and then obviously then it was you know really unique um, Lviv is high spirits high morale the Ukraines. Uh, you know, the people of Ukraine, they've, they've just got so much morale and high spirits. And, um, you know, seeing the chaplain bless all of our passengers uh, for our journey back into Poland. Isn't that amazing. remarkable? Where, where do you think that that morale is coming from for them? I think it's, um, I think, you know, when you look at what's actually happening, um, they believe they are the under, you know, this, the underdog, so to speak. When you look at David and Goliath, you know, they are David, um, and they are able to, to conquer and defend. And that spirit and unite, you know, there's history, you know, behind the Ukrainians. Um, you look at the last time something like this has happened uh, of this magnitude. Sure, you know, 2014 when the Russians came in, but... You know, at this level, hearing the sirens and the air raids um, and the warnings and the people out there still trying to go about their life. You know, we went through th- three air raid uh, warnings last night. It's common practice in Lviv and area. Um, but people yesterday, it was a beautiful Sunday, uh, very bright, sunny. But you just had so many people out there in the parks and musicians and everybody trying to bring some hope and extra cheer and try to get you to forget what's actually happening to the East. Wow. What do you how do you compare this to what you saw in in Afghanistan back in the fall when you were when you were helping getting those many dozens of people out of that country? Well, there, there's no comparison. Each brings its own horror, and it was horrific. And I can never, I still can't get that smell, that taste, that image out of me from what happened. And all of us that were involved with the tens of thousands of people that were just in a horrific state. Now you multiply that 
so much more, and the devastation is so much more. You know, the missiles, the sophistication of the of the uh, the aggressor, the enemy who's coming in. It's just brutal, you know, brutal leveling mm-hmm. cities, and you know, people jumping on trains, uh, vehicles trying to flee. Some can't flee, so you know, you can't compare this. This is. This is at a complete different scale. I'm not going to try to take away from the Afghans and those Afghans mm-hmm. listening. We're still there. We're still supporting you. Um, so don't worry about that. But this is something of a, a larger scale. Um, and it's something that all of us need to get behind. And for those that are listening, feel free to provide any support. If you have resources, anything that you would like to get to the Ukraine and you would like to know how to do that, please drop me a line. Uh, at info at ravenrayresources.com, and we can certainly help it out. We'll guarantee we'll make sure your product, your funds, your resources get to the end user. What is needed, Dave? What do people need? They need resources. They need funds. They need medical supplies. They need food. You know, they need all of the provisions that you can think of to help out. There's people without food, medicines. We need to get medical aid, and there's so many lists that we can provide uh, that has to get to the front lines. You know, medical first aid kits, those are really important. You know, uh, training uh, to get those people up to speed. We have people that are able to do that. But the physical resources, the funds, you know, if we had donors to actually, um, you know, uh, to provide further uh, further funds, we can double, triple, quadruple the, the the efforts that we are doing right now, and not only bringing out four, five, six, seven families, we could be bringing out hundreds of families. We are setting up the network, but that's what it takes. It just takes a lot more people, and there's so many good people out there. Yeah, there's thousands of people. You've got. I, I just met one individual who stopped what he was doing, got on a plane picked up with, you know, about three kit bags full of medicines and soccer balls, and he flew into Warsaw, drove to the border where I'm at, and he couldn't cross the border. And I asked, where were you from? And he says, I'm from Detroit, but I can't get across the border. Would you mind delivering this? And we did, and we were able to get that across for him. So there's amazing people out there doing amazing things. Amazing. Precious cargo going in both directions. David Lavery, thank you so much for your work, for your time, for your words. Uh, I'll tweet that out at Tamara Cherry Info at ravenrayresources.com. If you have support you can provide, get in touch with Dave. Dave, thanks so much. Welcome back to The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Tamara Cherry, on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Federal Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan said yesterday that the government wants an immediate deal to end a work stoppage that shut down Canadian operations for CP Rail yesterday. Of course, this is a labor dispute that has been going on for months and finally came to a head yesterday. O'Regan says that after two years of a pandemic and now a war in Europe, Canadians have no bandwidth left for another massive economic disruption. Here's a bit of what he had to say. It's important. 
important that they're at the table. I feel it's important that progress is being made. I feel a very real sense of urgency, and I believe that that's a sense of urgency that is shared by the parties. And he said, though, that the best deals are reached around the bargaining table. Well, our next guest may be looking for some more immediate intervention from the federal government. Mark Agnew is the senior vice president of policy and government relations at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And he joins us now. Mark, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me on. So, Mark, what do you uh, what do you what can you tell us about what impact this work stoppage could have on our already very stressed supply chain in Canada in the coming days? Yeah, so I think there's, um, you know, different impacts by sector. One of the ones that, you know, we've been hearing quite a fair amount of uh, from our members, just given, you know, where we are with yesterday being the first day of spring, is the impact on uh, planting uh, season, which, um, you know, is quite important for an agriculture-dependent uh, economy such, of our, uh, such as ours. So, for instance, um, 75% of all fertilizer in Canada is moved by rail. And so if you're moving into the spring seeding season, um, this is one of those things where, like, every day and every hour, you know, counts. And so we've heard uh, quite a fair bet from that segment of our membership. But it extends to other segments too. I mean, forestry, mining. Uh, even today, I had, for instance, um, a company that makes medical technologies reach out to me with concern about this. I mean, the impact is fairly broad uh, in terms of um, the Canadian economy and the sectors that are feeling the, the pinch. So they're feeling, are they feeling the pinch already? Or are they more worried about what's, what's to come in the days to come? Um, they're feeling the pinch already because the work stoppage uh, or the, the strike uh, came into effect at uh, 12.01 a.m. on uh, Sunday, I guess it was. So we're on to the second day uh, of this with the cargo not moving. And um, what I would say, though, is that it's easy for you know us as the, the kind of, um, you know, the folks are talking about in the news cycle about CP Rail, but the companies that are feeling the CP Rail strike today are the same companies that have, you know, the inflationary cost of their inputs going up. They had to deal with the BC forest fires, the BC flooding, pandemic work stoppages. And so um, kind of to the, the point you made before I came on, it's sort of been one hit after another for businesses that are feeling the cumulative burden of this. Um, as much as things might move out of the, the news cycle, the impact can be quite lingering uh, for businesses. What do you what do you make of uh, Seamus O'Regan's comments yesterday that it, it's important that this deal is worked out at the bargaining table and uh, presumably not through government intervention. Well, I mean, yes, the chamber supports, um, you know, the collective bargaining you know, process. But at the same time, what we have right now is a critical piece of our national you know, infrastructure that is not functioning. And so... Mm-hmm. We have been on the record as of uh, yesterday. Um, the chamber put out a statement saying that you know the government should immediately table back to work legislation. Um, there is, I think, uh, perhaps the the best route being to solve this to have an arbitrator that's appointed that is able to uh, you know reach a resolution in this. But in the immediate term, we do need to see back to work legislation because every day that the rail cars aren't running is another day that the impacts can get worse for the Canadian economy. And even once. The, the strike does come to an end. It's not as if, you know, within an hour, the rail cars are going to start, you know, flowing again. It's going to take time to boot things back up. And of course, there's going to be a massive backlog that will have been accumulated also during that process. And as we found from the COVID work stoppages, whittling down those, uh, you know, backlogs is not something that happens quick and easy. I mean, we're still struggling to get IKEA furniture, for instance, put our direction. So um, these things can be quite durable in terms of uh, how, a con- how a company see the impact even long after it uh, supposedly comes to an end. What what sort of dent would be able to what, what sort of dent would moving some of this 
product to land to trucks to big rigs would that make any dent in in the backlog that we're going to see or is it just apples and oranges when we're comparing rail rail to the roads um it'll make partial uh you know a partial dent in it but um you know the, it's not as if we weren't having problems also in the trucker space already i mean uh having right. shortages of truck drivers uh you know this is only going to kind of exacerbate those issues i mean one stat um, that I'd seen put out by the um, the railway association real railway association recently is that um, you know one kind of train load can take up to 300 trucks uh, off the road and so um, that kind of metric I think just goes to show how important rail is uh, to the Canadian economy and I think it's roughly about um, three a little over 300 billion dollars worth of goods that are moved by rail every year so um, if this isn't defined as you know essential then I don't really know what would be. How long do you think, like, let's say this goes on for the next week, just just to put a time figure on it, how long would it take to catch up from that, would you say? Um, I mean, that's a question that's a little bit outside of my skill level. I mean, you have to go and ask CP Rail what the kind of, you know, restart uh, runway looks like for them. Um, but certainly, I would think I definitely do know is that it's not going to be an overnight, uh, you know, process by any stretch of the imagination. Right. And, and, and... Do you think that if we weren't in this situation where we've just, I mean, I don't, I, I would like to say coming out of the pandemic, but who knows if that's actually the case. If we weren't in this very specific circumstance of the pandemic, the, the trucker issues that we've had in recent week, weeks and re, now recent months and, and the war in Ukraine, do you think that you would still be calling for this immediate intervention from the government? Yes, um, this is, again, like rail being such a critical part of our national economic infrastructure, um, even if we didn't have those other things, I don't think that would change our you know position. Um, this is something that our members have been very vocal about over the last number of days leading up to the anticipated strike that unfortunately did come to pass uh, on Sunday. And so, um, you know, I don't think our position you know would have changed on this. I think we would have been quick out of the gate saying the exact same thing. And certainly, um, you know, we hope that the government's going to be able to act on this in the coming you know days and yes you know support the the negotiating you know process up to a point but um we're now in the sort of uh real world where strikes happen and the impacts are starting to stack up for businesses you 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 spoke earlier about uh fertilizer and uh i know that we've heard from fertilizer canada the group present representing manufacturers wholesale and retail distributors uh and that they have also been calling on the federal government to take immediate action the average Canadian, though, might not see how that can relate to them if they're not in, say, the farming um, industry. Can you paint a picture for us uh, if something like fertilizer is not moving at the pace that it should be across the country, how that would affect or impact the everyday Canadian? Well, if you sort of dust off the, uh, the, the you know, Economics 101 textbook, I mean, the sort of supply and demand function, and I think we've seen this borne out over the last number of weeks. I mean, as the sort of um, the supply, you know, dries up, then that means that the prices are going to go up. And so we're already seeing, you know, inflation in excess of, you know, seven, eight percent for uh, food products in terms of what people are are paying. And so um, if we're having less fertilizer out in the field, that means lower crop yields, which means less supply, and that means higher prices for consumers at the grocery store. Well, all right. Mark Agnew, uh, Senior Vice President of Policy and Government Relations at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Thanks so much for joining us. This is certainly an issue we will be keeping a close eye on in the days, perhaps even hours to come. We'll have to see now that the House is uh, back today, whether the government will be moving to intervention. But certainly the uh, federal minister yesterday of uh, Labour did not seem to indicate that that would be happening right away. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me on.
You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. Andrew Murray was many things to many people. To his wife, Joan, and two children, Alex and Stacy. he was the devoted and caring husband and father who did everything he could to give them the best lives possible. He was a traveler who traveled the world, most recently on safari in Kenya. He was an athlete, five-time Ironman. He biked, he snowboarded, he scuba dived, swimming, running, playing hockey, snowshoeing, hiking. There didn't seem to be that many things that Andy Murray didn't do. But perhaps you know him best as the CEO of Mad Canada for the past 25 years. Andrew Murray died recently, three months after being diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer. Our next guests are going to talk to us a little bit about his incredible life and legacy that he leaves behind from Mad Canada. Robert Solomon is a professor of law at Western University and former longtime legal director for Mothers Against Drunk Driving Canada. And Carolyn Swinson is the former chair of the National Board former national president and former president of MAD Toronto chapter. She's also the current director of victim services for the Toronto chapter. Robert, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm so sorry for the loss of your colleague and your friend, Andy. Thank you. Um, Robert. I wish it was in different circumstances. Uh, of course, Carolyn. I, I uh, perhaps I'll start with you. I was I was shocked when I saw. I think it was an, an alert on LinkedIn earlier this month that Andrew had died because you know, as a reporter, he was he was a household name in our newsroom. Anytime we we were talking about impaired driving, I mean, there were a few reporters in this country that I don't think had uh, Andrew Andy Murray's cell phone number no. or email address. Tell us a little bit about what legacy he leaves behind for you. Oh, it's an enormous, it's an enormous one, and it's an incredible loss for all Canada. And uh, for the last 25 years that I've worked with, uh, that I've worked with Andy, and sometimes in very close relationships, um, I mean, 25 years ago, it was a very, very small organization, just a small group of people. And and today, I mean, I remember when I was national president, there were 13 chapters in the country, and now we have over 100. And so he built the organization up into the powerhouse that it is, to the, is today. It's the, you know, it's the first organization that, that comes to mind when you're dealing with impaired driving, and and that was all Andy's uh, Andy's doing. And he was just an incredible, very humble person. What do, you, what do you think uh, it was, Carolyn, that drove drove his passion for this work, his his relentless advocacy for for victims and survivors? I think it was because of watching um, every day having new victims come in, you know, come into MAD, who uh, people who had either lost someone or been been injured in an impaired driving crash, and knowing it was completely preventable, and knowing the things that you could do with it, and I think that was the driving force behind Andy was was prevention and to stop people from uh, from you know from taking drinking or taking drugs and getting behind the wheel of a car he just wanted to stop the many tragedies yeah robert uh you worked side by side with andy for for many years on all the legislation and and legal policies 
and issues that Mad Canada have advocated for and promoted over the years. Can you talk to us a little bit about the evolution of Canada's impaired driving laws and, and how they changed over the years, thanks in large part to Andy's leadership and dedication? Well, uh, Andy had a commitment uh, to, uh, he wanted, and we've talked about it a lot, eventually he wanted Mad to get out of the victim business. In other words, he understood the importance of prevention and preventing these deaths and injuries to occur. And, you know, uh, he was willing to follow the the science and the empirical evidence. Uh, and so at the provincial level, we had a, a broad program to assess the provincial laws, and we looked at the international community in terms of what we knew saved lives. And, and Andy, uh, uh, you know, uh, was, uh, you know, unfearless in advocating for those for those changes, I mean, he went to virtually every province and territory, advocating for those changes. Uh, uh, you know, on a, every uh, two or three years, he advocated for a similar set of changes at the federal level. And one of the joys for me is to see the work that I do, making a contribution to actually reducing deaths and injuries. We saw deaths and injuries among 16 to 21-year-olds fall significantly in, in Canada due to Andy's advocacy for, for graduated licensing programs at the provincial level and zero blood alcohol levels until you reach the age of, of, of 22. But he was also a fearless advocate for administrative license suspensions and similar programs that we now see have further reduced deaths, deaths and injuries. At the federal level, Drug-impaired driving was one of his major, uh, major uh, 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 initiatives. He, mm-hmm. was, uh, he wasn't just simply about punishing uh, uh, impaired drivers. He also advocated for alcohol interlock programs mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, if you were convicted of a federal offense, you had to put an interlock on your car and give you an opportunity to address the underlying problem. So his contribution uh, was massive. And we're talking about thousands of lives over his 20-year uh, yeah. career, 25-year career. Robert, how do you think politicians, provincial and federal politicians, viewed Andy? I, I think they probably viewed him uh, <laughs> with some grudging respect. Uh, he was fearless, um, uh, and he was willing to tell politicians uh, that, their, that the positions they were taking were wrong, and that they were endangering uh, uh, individuals. But he was even-handed. He was just as happy to, to publicly congratulate a politician uh, uh, if, they initi- you know, if they introduced meaningful and significant, significant uh, lives. So I think there was a, a, a grudging respect uh, uh, for, for, for An- Andy. And, and I think that that served the organization well. Because politicians took Andrew seriously, and they knew that if they didn't introduce laws that were effective, the organization would criticize them. And on the other hand, they knew that if they introduced effective laws, that Mad Canada would be behind them and congratulate them uh, uh, publicly. Carolyn, it's remarkable to think that Andy was CEO for the last 25 years of of Mad Canada. Can you speak to what kind of leader he was and the sort of respect that he had from from yourself and your colleagues and all the volunteers? Yes, well, he had enormous respect. Um, As as I said before, Andy um, 
was a very humble person, um, and and he treated everybody. It didn't matter who they were. He treated them with always always the same amount of respect, and and he listened. And every year we would have the victims, you know, victims conference, and he would be there um, with that, and at the national conference, and he would be, you know, talking to victims, and he helped many victims personally. And you know, sometimes, um, sometimes the case is is you know is not you know a trial is not working out right, or there are questions, and and it would be to help out people you know people indiv- individually, and um, he. Um, he was just such an approachable person. I mean, for for many years now, I've also been one of the spokespeople for Mad, and mm-hmm. and I always knew that if I needed a question um, answering, all I had to do was either email Andy or or phone him, and I had, I would have that answer immediately. Yeah. And it, he he was just always he was just always there, and and uh, and and really. I can't emphasize how how humble he was. He never he never looked for you know he never looked to make himself um, make himself known. He he was there completely for the organization, and as Robert Solomon said, he was very much in wanting to prevent the deaths and injuries that are caused by in, impaired driving. He just wanted and a, a remarkable a remarkable yeah. human being. And, and Carolyn yeah. Swinson, Robert Solomon, I thank you so much for your time and your memories. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, it's Tamara Cherry broadcasting live from Regina, Saskatchewan. Thanks for joining us. If you were listening to our last segment, you heard uh, my interview with, with two colleagues and friends of a remarkable man, Andrew Murray, known as Andy to to most who knew him. Um, He was the CEO and the face of Mad Canada for the past 25 years. And Andy died on March 8th, surrounded by his immediate family, three months after being diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer. His death is a remarkable loss for the victim advocacy community here in Canada. But I want to hear from you now. And you can give us a call, one 1010 I want to know how your views have changed about impaired driving over the past few decades. Because if you thought impaired driving was okay a few decades ago and you don't anymore, that is probably in large part thanks to the work of Andy Murray and his colleagues over at Mad, Mad Canada. So have your views changed about impaired driving? How so? one 633 1010, or you can text us at 71010. It has been remarkable to watch uh, impaired driving case after impaired driving case unfold for me uh, personally, professionally over the last several years. Uh, as some of our listeners know, I was the crime reporter for CTV Toronto uh, up until a couple of years ago, and I was a crime reporter in Toronto period for close to 15 years 
And I can't tell you how many impaired driving collisions I reported on that left grieving families in their wake. And as we heard from Andy Murray's former colleagues and friends, Robert Solomon and Carolyn Swinson, it was in large part those families that are left behind that drove the work that Andy did for so many years, advocating to different levels of government, uh, you know, changing the hearts and minds of Canadians, getting the graduated licensing system in place in different provinces, uh, the interlock system uh, for convicted drunk drivers. He has done he has done remarkable work across the country. And I like I can recall several occasions in the different newsrooms that I worked in in Toronto where there's an impaired driving issue some for some reason in the news, whether there's another crash or there's a piece of legislation coming down and somebody stands up and says, who has a number for Andy Murray? And somebody else stands up and says, I got it, sending it to you now. And he would either be on the phone with that reporter moments later or returning their call very, very quickly. So give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. How have your views on impaired driving changed over the years? When I think about my own views, I mean, going back 25 years, how old would I have been? Teenager, almost a teenager at that point. Um, I remember knowing that impaired driving was bad, but even back then, it wasn't the same. It wasn't looked at the same as it is now. I mean... (sighs) It, it, there, there is such a sense of, I think, public disgust when it comes to it, but also an increased understanding of some of the addiction and mental health issues that can lead to this that I think has really driven the charge to tackle this issue from multiple fronts, especially in recent years where we, we see different court decisions that, you know, real precedent setting um, real precedent setting court decisions where people are getting some very serious uh, prison sentences uh, for traffic fatalities where impaired driving was a cause of it. We are also hearing about more cases where uh, it's not necessarily drunk driving, but drug drug impaired driving. And that is an issue that Andy Murray and, and Mad Canada has taken up uh, steadfastly in recent years as well advocating against drug-impaired driving, especially as uh, marijuana became legal in Canada. They got us thinking about how marijuana could affect our ability to drive and our judgment on the road. How have your, how have your views changed on this topic? one 855 Somebody on the text board from Montreal telling us that they've always thought that impaired drivers should have their license permanently revoked. Um, and if you want to stop drunk driving, there should be an automatic 20 year jail sentence, zero tolerance period. I wonder if the people that are, are texting in those messages, uh, thought that 25 years ago, uh, we've got a, one caller on the line from Caledon, Ontario, Marine, uh, what do you, how do you, how have your views changed about impaired driving, uh, over the years? Oh, I understand Marine. You're, you're his sister-in-law. Are you Andy's sister-in-law? Yes, I'm slightly biased. Um, I, I'm, I really I'm so have... first, Maureen. I'm so sorry for your loss, and thank you for calling in. What a remarkable man your your brother-in-law was. Yeah, he was. I, I actually just wanted to add a couple of comments to things that Carolyn said. Um, he was very, very genuine. 
about his passion for victims of impaired driving. And um, it really framed everything he did. And we had a lot of very good conversations, not just about impaired driving, but his knowledge of road safety and and different initiatives that were being taken there was really phenomenal. I worked in the auto industry, so we used to have a lot of talk about, uh, you know, he would question me on things that I really didn't know a lot about, um, <laughs> about <laughs> what vehicle manufacturers were doing to improve road safety. But uh, Carolyn had made a comment that Andy always got back to people really quickly, and I think part of the reason he could do that, one skill he had or that always amazed me was his um, his ability to remember statistics and uh, and data, not just for impaired driving, but for anything, for sports, for other road safety. And he, he just sucked in facts and uh, was able to analyze things and... and uh, and draw really good conclusions. Um, so obviously, you know, being uh, close to Andy, we all changed our, our view of impaired driving from sort of, uh, yeah, it's out there. Um, I did have a friend whose brother was uh, killed by a drunk driver, and Andy was very helpful in that situation. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, uh, as I said, I'm biased, but I think that mm-hmm. uh, Matt has done a, a tremendous job of um, uh, of um, changing attitudes through the various mm-hmm. programs they've had in schools and the advertising and the and the advocacy. Just just hearing what uh, Robert was saying before the break about his advocacy and how he was seen by politicians, I can only imagine how heated some of those conversations may get in a in a fair and friendly way as he was with his integrity uh, around the dinner table at things like Christmas time and Thanksgiving. So thank you so much, Maureen, for sharing a little bit of Andy with us today. And please send my condolences to your your family. I'm thinking about them as are many Canadians today. Thank you. Of course. Brenda, you're calling from Windsor. Uh, your views have changed, and in a very personal way. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, uh, my husband was involved in a car accident. It's coming up on five years this May. Um, the driver of the vehicle was impaired. My husband was in ICU for 31 days, uh, in the hospital for 90 days. And the result is a catastrophic brain injury that has changed uh, not only his life, but my life uh, forever. So I'm very grateful for MAD. I think they've come a long way. I feel a great loss uh, for the organization, but certainly for the country. There's still much work to be done. Um, When I was younger, as a teenager, I don't know that I gave uh, much consideration to driving impaired one way or another. It just didn't touch me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, as I had children and they became teenagers, I certainly was a little bit more um, concerned about the problem. But up until five years ago and, and living the nightmare and the experience uh, firsthand, um, it's a senseless, senseless uh, way to lose a family member and Although my husband survived, I did lose the husband, the man that I married. And and and, and, uh, for- and Brenda, I'm I'm I, I'm sorry to cut you off there. We're just coming up against the break, but I so appreciate your call because it's something we don't talk about a lot: are the survivors from these crashes whose lives are changed forever. 
Coming up after the break, was it really about vaccine mandates or something darker? We'll talk to Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist, about the so-called Freedom Convoy. computer issues with the sounder. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for everybody who has been texting in after those last two segments we did about the death of mad CEO, Andy Murray. A lot of people texting in with their stories of impaired driving and the wonderful work that mad did for them. So thank you very much for that. I always get pummeled on the text board when I refer to the trucker convoy that descended upon Ottawa as the so-called freedom convoy. Why is it always the so-called freedom convoy? It's the freedom convoy. Well, it's the so-called freedom convoy because freedom convoy is how it was branded by the people that did it. But I would not agree that it was actually a freedom convoy. I think it seemed pretty early on in the convoy, or it was apparent pretty early on in the convoy that there was a lot more behind this than uh, a vaccine mandate protest. With more insight on this is the remarkable freelance investigative journalist, Justin Ling, who's done an endless supply of work on this issue and continues, no doubt, I'm sure, in the background to do even more work. Justin, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. and Thanks for the the kind words. Of course. You had a a very expansive piece published in the Toronto Star over the weekend. It was just fascinating. The question, what was behind this so-called freedom convoy? Uh, As I mentioned, it seemed apparent from pretty early on that it was more than just vaccine mandates. But your reporting points to the fact that the roots of this convoy actually date back more than a year before the pandemic. Tell us about the convoy to Ottawa back in January of 2019. Yeah, so so I think we all kind of vaguely remember the the convoy that that went to Parliament Hill in 2019 over you know carbon pricing. They called it the United We Roll convoy, and it had everybody from Andrew Scheer, who was then the leader of the Conservative Party, to Faith Goldie, noted white nationalist. It was sort of a controversial protest. Uh, obviously, a lot of legitimate grievances that were sort of um, you know latched onto by some extremist groups and some far right figures, um, but. A number of people who went to that rally, I think, saw the power and the utility of using trucks and vehicles and a big old convoy as a protest device. So uh, noted participants, uh, Pat King, who was one of the main organizers of the whole thing, not quite so front and center, but he helped Mm -hmm. get some of the trucks together. Uh, You also saw a guy named James Botter, who who joined the convoy from out west. Um, A handful of other people who I think realized just how effective that was. Even if that protest itself didn't go too far, I think they realized how much they could just drive into the city 
and park downtown Ottawa and and kind of have their run of the place. There's also a number of people who saw that, I think, and and realized they could use it to other ends. So as you know, the pandemic happens, um, you know, time ticks on. Some of these groups get sort of frustrated by the way in which government uh, is managing the pandemic. You start seeing Botter in particular reimagining an idea for a convoy. And when he does, he kind of you know links arms with a couple of other types who <laughs> I think see the utility in um, how my phrase is kind of delicately who see the utility in in getting people together to sort of advocate for the removal of the government entirely you know mm-hmm. he along with a handful of other people draw up this what he calls a memorandum of understanding um, and the way it's phrased in conversations um, with him and his organizers is that they're going to use this to sort of root out the globalist power that has taken over Canada they see a, a kind of corrupting influence of an inter- of a series of international bodies including the World Economic Forum and this memorandum of understanding is sort of their legal uh, sword to to do to do battle with, and ultimately they don't have much success. They actually tried this convoy last year, and it didn't go anywhere. A couple dozen people joined. They protested outside of the parliament or out of the prime minister's office, uh, and and didn't get kind of anywhere. It wasn't until earlier this year that finally there was some momentum behind them. Uh, finally, they start getting some other groups signed up, and who you start seeing joining them is people like Pat King. Mm-hmm. You also see some other groups who have uh, kind of you know saber rattled around this World Economic Forum conspiracy theory. You see anti-mask groups, anti-vax groups, uh, groups that have uh, sued the government, alleging that they're microchipping the population with 5G-enabled uh, surveillance devices. You see this real hodgepodge of conspiracy theorists. But at the very root of all of this is is you know a group of people who I think have been uh, you know. Uh, really appreciating the degree to which using these trucks could be a very powerful way of sending a message. How, like, what role do you think conspiracy theories played in this movement before the pandemic versus what role they played most recently with this convoy and continue to play? Yeah, so so, so folks involved in this have been conspiracy theorists for quite some time. Pat King uh, has has peddled the conspiracy theory that Western governments are trying to bring in uh, immigrants and refugees in order to uh, weaken the power of white folks, essentially. It's what we call the white genocide theory. Um, He has uh, expressed this belief, uh, you know, going back quite some years. James Botter has repeatedly shared uh, QAnon conspiracy theories. Uh, Tamara Leach, so the woman you've you've seen on the news quite a bit, she was, she started the GoFundMe. Um, she was involved in setting up a, um, a an event for a guy named Tom Quiggin in Alberta a couple of years back in 2019. Tom Quiggin styles himself as an intelligence expert. He's in fact a, a virulent conspiracy theorist who uh, has been uh, sued for alleging that basically every significant uh, leader of a Muslim organization in Canada is a front for the Muslim Brotherhood and has ties to terrorism. Um, and it just so happens that the guy who produces Tom Quiggin's podcast is Benjamin Ditchter, one of the other main organizers of this whole thing. So 
I don't mean I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm you know you know you're pulling red twine between a bunch of names, but basically every single person who is in the core organizing group of this convoy and the ensuing occupation has been running in the same circles for quite some years. All of them have, at the very least, peddled some conspiracy theories. Many of them are themselves conspiracy peddlers. And I, I think it's worth noting that you know a lot of the rhetoric you saw in the media was was a real attempt by them to to market this as being something more moderate and reasonable than it really was. And people will say, well, listen, you know, this was a leaderless movement. This was grassroots. People who came out don't necessarily give you know you, you know, care about the organizers. Don't necessarily ascribe to all their beliefs. And there's some truth to that. But what I can tell you is that this whole idea that the World Economic Forum is behind everything, and that this whole pandemic is sort of being managed by uh, shadowy figures who are uh, you know, more than happy to have the pandemic continue so that they can exercise more control and surveillance over the population, and that maybe we're heading towards some sort of one-world socialist government. That belief, that theory, that conspiracy theory is incredibly prevalent. Mm. You see it on signs. You hear people talking about it on the street. You see it on the Facebook pages of, of random folks who turned out. Uh, you hear it in, in, in interviews. You hear it on the live streams. I can't tell you how ubiquitous that belief was when, in the time I spent in the occupation in Ottawa. You know, fundamentally, this was not about vaccine mandates. This was about the entire pandemic response and a belief that it stemmed from something quite darker. And and on that note, I mean, we'll end it on that note, Justin, just because we're coming up against the break. But I have so many more questions for you. Uh, but on that note, it's not going away. This movement hasn't gone away. And I don't think that people should think that it is over now that just that the uh, the spotlight is on Russia and Ukraine. So Justin Ling, uh, freelance investigative journalist, thank you so much for your insights. I encourage our listeners to check out Justin's uh, story in the Toronto Star from this weekend. You can find it at thestar.com. Have a great day, Justin. Thanks for having me. Of course. Coming up after the break, are you thinking about booking a vacation? Should you be? Are prices going up? We'll talk to somebody who may be able to provide some of that insight. I'm Tamara Cherry, in for Evan Solomon. This is the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So my husband and I spent quite a bit of time last week trying to figure out what we're going to do with all the little munchkins in the summertime. We got three of them. One of them is in daycare. Two of them are in school. One of them is also in daycare part time. And so we were doing what the parents do around this time, which is scramble for spaces in summer camps. But we also got to thinking about traveling because our daycare is shut down for a couple of weeks in the summer. So I thought this would be a good opportunity for my husband and I to both take a couple of weeks off work and go somewhere. So we started looking at some flights because I wanted to drive to Toronto with the kids from here in Saskatchewan. We've done the drive a couple of times. My husband finds it a bit triggering to think about driving 24 hours straight with the kids after the last couple of adventures that we had. So he opted for flights and we started checking and crunching the numbers between the price of, you know, high gas prices 
and potentially rising costs of aviation, we still don't really know what to do. But perhaps our next guest will help us out a little bit and help you also with whatever plans you may or may not be thinking about. Christine Latremois is the manager of the Uniglobe Travel Agency in Dorval, Quebec, and she joins us now. Christine, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. How are you today? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm very well, although I'm cringing at the thought of driving from Saskatchewan to Toronto with three young children in the car. <laughs> we don't do it straight. I actually love it. My husband is probably cringing right now if he's listening, but there's lots of great places that we can stop along the way. Okay, Christine, for people that are thinking about perhaps getting away this summer uh, or even maybe next winter or maybe in the immediate future, what what can people expect in terms of flight prices? Because they went down, they went up, they went down, and now we're allegedly kind of coming out of the pandemic, but we've got these raging high fuel costs. What, how is that going to affect the, the costs of our tickets? Well, what we're seeing so far is Air Canada and WestJet have not really increased uh, their fare levels within a, an airline ticket price at all yet. We anticipate that's going to change. We certainly see it, seen it change already for tickets to Europe. The fuel surcharges can be as much as $1,200 on a $2,000 ticket. So you wow. can imagine the, the airfare is 500 and the taxes are the difference, and most of the taxes are the fuel surcharge. So I think it's coming. We're definitely seeing it for Europe. I think it's inevitable that we're going to see it domestically. And then in the United States, I believe Delta's already started tacking on some hefty fuel surcharges. So it's difficult to predict when this is going to happen, but I think it's a sure thing and a sure bet that you can expect prices will rise sooner than later. So that $1,200 fuel surcharge going to Europe, when did you start seeing that? Is that very recently or has that been going on for some time now? It's It's been recent. Up until now, it was something in the region of $700. So the $1,200 is this big spike. And we've seen that for the, maybe the last three weeks. Wow. I mean, you think about that, the, the impact on one person buying a ticket. But I think about my family of five. I'm always multiplying by five. And suddenly a trip that was already expensive becomes very much unaffordable for a lot of people. Uh, can you kind of walk us through, Christine, the, the, what we saw with, with aviation prices throughout the pandemic? Because there has been a lot of stuff that's happened in terms of different mandates, vaccine requirements, masking, all that stuff that had people not flying for a while. So maybe start there and then we can talk about how things have changed and how that might impact the, the travel industry. But, but we've, been, we've been in this pandemic for more than two years now. Bring us back a couple of years. What happened with the airline industry? Well, the airline industry at the beginning of of the pandemic was certainly making it possible for people to delay their trips. So they weren't penalizing you with ticket penalties. They were allowing you to carry the, the, the value of a ticket forward if your flight was canceled. If you decided to cancel, the rules were a little bit different. And then in the summer of last year, we saw the government come forward and offer financing to Air Canada and Air Canada Vacations um, uh, to be able to refund your pool tickets if you weren't able to travel. So that was wonderful. And at the same time, we saw the airlines being much more generous with no change penalty. So where they will charge you a cancellation fee, let's say on a ticket to Europe, it was 300, that's still stuck. But they were able to say to you, if you make a change, we won't charge you a penalty. That was a big step. And I believe it's a permanent step. We've seen that rule stay the course throughout, even now when the pandemic has eased up. Most airlines are not charging a cancellation penalty. Having said that, we're seeing that 
the rules are going to start changing again to getting to be more restrictive. It almost feels like we've gone from the frying pan to the fire because while the COVID restrictions have eased up of late, the airfares are starting to go up. And so we're going to pay for this one way or another. And the airlines have got a lot to recoup from what they've lost over the last two years. So expect higher fares. But it's got to be a balancing act, right? Because they're really trying to get people back to to flying. Like I, we booked flights to Toronto next month. And I think for my husband and I both return tickets, it was something like $300, 300 and something dollars. I know those are going up, but do you expect that they would shoot up substantially when they're still trying to get people back, you know, comfortable in a, in an airplane? I, I, I believe that, yes, they will start jacking things up because, I mean, if I looked at the average price for our business travelers between Montreal and Toronto, it's nothing to pay $700 now for a round-trip ticket. Um, Now, that's generally because tickets are booked more or less last minute, let's say within three or four days of travel. However, Mm -hmm. if you booked well in advance, you may well have been able to capitalize on, on the least expensive fare. And I think those will still be around, but as the summer approaches, I think you're going to see deals like that disappear. Okay, so anybody who's thinking about traveling this summer, perhaps with their kids, what would your advice be in terms of, can you say, you know, go here, don't go here, this is how you'll save money, book now, book later, what what would your advice be? My advice would be to book earlier than later, to make sure that you understand the rules, make sure you understand that there's any coverage available to you to mitigate any of the penalties, and uh, definitely get the good advice of an agency. And, and that's really because they do this every day, and they understand the rules, and they're working with the rules every day. But planning ahead, I think, is going to be key, and make sure that what you book is either flexible, or if it's not flexible, that you've got the right kind of coverage that will allow you to make some changes. Okay, so what kind of coverage? Just shout that out for us. What kind of coverage should people be looking for? You can look at something called trip cancellation insurance, which would allow you to cover for some, uh, change your plans for some coverable reasons. Or there's something else that's called um, uh, cancel at any time coverage. And that has a much more generous uh, set of definitions on what allows you to cancel and get your money back. And though it can be expensive on a tram, a family trip for five people like you're, like you're planning, yes. um, it can save you a great deal of money in the end if you can actually get your money back, no matter what the reason is for canceling. So make sure you have adequate coverage. And there are two or three on the market. Most of the suppliers that sell vacation trips allow you to purchase for a modest fee of maybe $50, something called worry-free or careflex that allows you to defer your trip for another date. So it's not necessarily a refund, but it's not money lost either. Okay, great tips from Christine. Christine, Oh my gosh, my lips are not working, Christine. Christine Latremois, manager of the Uniglobe Travel Agency in Dorval, Quebec. Thanks so much for your time and your tips today. Have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. I am Tamara Cherry. I've been filling in for Evan Solomon and somebody on the text board suggesting that I take an RV with the kids to Ontario this summer. Have you seen the price of gas? We actually were thinking about buying an RV this year and we have put off that plan for at least a year because of the price of gas is just too much. Uh, If you missed anything on our show, if you'd like to listen again, uh, download and subscribe to the Evan Solomon Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Tamara Cherry. I'll be back in Evan's seat tomorrow. Have a great day.